Jesus, we are expectant to hear from you through your text this morning. And I'm so grateful for those kind words that Rob had, but I know it's you and it's not me who's bringing something worth listening to. And Jesus, even as I listen to the wrestle of kids and and family on sort of the fringes of the tent, I'm reminded that church is a family. It's not a building. It's not an event. It's not a business. It's a family. Holy Spirit, what do you have this morning for the family of God that is gathered to proclaim your name and seek you? Jesus, I believe you're on about really, really good things at Anthem Thousand Oaks, and I pray that my words and my preparation would just be another brick in the wall of what you're building here in this church and in this community and in this city. So, Jesus, we pray for your grace this morning. Amen. Amen. Well, hello. Like Rob mentioned, uh, we have been lurking around Anthem for some time. Uh, Sherry and I helped lead a church that you guys got to help send out almost six years ago. We're coming up on our sixth birthday next month, uh, and up until that point, we were here wearing a bunch of different hats, doing a bunch of different things, and I see some of you out in the crowd that I remember from our days here and Sherry and I's early marriage when we only had one baby, and now we've got three kiddos, and I'm so excited and delighted at the opportunity to open up the scriptures with you. And so if you do have a Bible or a Bible app on your phone, go to Matthew chapter 13. And while you're doing that, I just want to say hello to everyone who's gathering online. You guys can grab your phone or your Bible too and open up with me to Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. And as you're turning there, I, I maybe just want to ask a question that may get some gears going in our brains this morning. Because I do believe God's on about something. Um, If you haven't noticed, the last two years have been a bit weird. Is it just me? Just Ventura? Are you guys fine up here in Thousand Oaks? No, all right, it's been weird, right? And if we roll back the calendar a few years, no matter your political persuasion, it's been a weird four or five years And if we are thinking critically about the culture we live in, we can go back another 10 years, another 20 years and go, there's something happening in the world around us. Because every day, every year feels like it's getting weirder and weirder than the one that came before. Now, I don't believe that's an accident. My theology tells me that's not an accident, that God's actually on about something. There's a lot of really smart people who've written a lot of really brilliant things about renewal and revival throughout church history. And they they say something like, every 20 or 30 years, there's a new unique move of God somewhere in the world, right? And it's not sort of weird, mysterious, kind of spooky things that are happening, but God just sort of turns up to 11 what he is doing And as I look at what's been going on in our county and our country over the last few years and even last decade, I have to be asking myself, God, what do you want me to be paying attention to? Because things are getting super weird. And not only out there things are getting weird, but in the church things are getting weird. Or once again, is that just me noticing those things? Now, here's the thing every really smart person will tell us about renewal and revival in the church is that it's always preceded by a time of chaos, confusion, and in the church, compromise and decay. It's always sort of this like gradual downhill 
and then God does something. That's the context. But in that gradual sort of compromise or decay or just sort of maybe what's more apropos for our time is complacency. In that, the seeds of renewal, the seeds of something God is doing, comes through this remnant. This word remnant is kind of an Old Testament word. It's used to describe the group of people that God preserved through the ups and downs of Israeli history to preserve his story through his people. And throughout church history, there's been a similar story that throughout these moments of renewal and revival, throughout these moments of what seems like compromise or complacency or decay in the church or around the church, God preserves a remnant. Now, here's why I take you to Matthew chapter 13 this morning, is there is something that you and I can do to prepare to be used by God in the everyday, in the ordinary, and in those moments of renewal. And so I just want to ask a simple question. Are you ready to be used by God? Is your life organized in such a way that if God wanted to use you, your hands are not too full with other things? Will we be expectant and ready for whatever God wants to do next? Or are we too content with life as it is to have it be challenged by God to even want the things of Jesus? Matthew chapter 13 is a very familiar story for those of you who are familiar with the Bible. It's Jesus' parable of the sowers, and he tells this parable or this story, and as he's telling the story, he's trying to communicate something about what the kingdom of God is like, what life with God is like. And then there's this moment where Jesus has to explain that not everyone understands these parables that he tells all the time, and then he sort of turns to his disciples and gives them the cliff notes, the cheat sheet version of what is happening. But first, I just want to take you to those first nine verses. Matthew chapter 13, verses 1 through 9. That same day, Jesus went out of the house and sat beside the sea, and great crowds gathered around him. So huge group of people that Jesus is talking to. And their crowds were so big that he got into the boat and sat down, and the whole crowd stood on the beach, like a makeshift stage, right? A floating little stage out there, and everyone's lined up on the beach. And he told them many things in parables, saying, a sower went out to sow. Right away, this would have been the pinnacle of cultural relevance. And for us, it just sort of goes over our head. Anyone farmers here? Yeah, thought so. Okay. One, maybe. This would have been like an incredibly specific picture that people had in their mind immediately. A sower goes out to sow. Everyone knows what that means. For us, maybe not so much. So even in this telling of the parable of the sower, close your eyes if you want to, or let your imagination go wild, right? Maybe just like, imagine you're driving back behind me, Santa Rosa Valley, where there actually still are farms around here. And imagine someone going out, hand, seed in hand, and they're sowing seeds. As he sowed them, some seeds fell along the path, and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. 
Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears, let him hear. So Jesus describes the gospel, the kingdom of God, going out and getting all sorts of responses. And Jesus uses this farming illustration here. Now, I don't know anything about farming, cards on the table, but I do know one important thing about farming. Farming never happens in a vacuum. There's never the perfect farming year. There's never like the ideal circumstances that you can count on year after year after year. Sometimes it's a dry year. Sometimes it's a really wet year. Some years you have a lot of laborers helping you out. Some years it's just you going out there. Some years are good for certain crops. Some years are bad. Farming never happens in a vacuum. I don't know anything about farming. I do know that. But I do know a little something about wine. Sherry and I enjoy going up to like uh, Paso Robles or San Ynez Valley or Los Olivos, like wine. In fact, one of our friends is a winemaker uh, at a winery up in Paso Robles. And one of the things he was telling us, he puts us in the back of his pickup truck and he's kind of taking us on this tour of the winery that he oversees. And one of the things he was telling us, this was a couple years back, was he was telling us the worse the weather according to our standards, the better the grapes, the better the wine that comes from those grapes. So if it's like really hot and dry during the summer and really icy cold and freezes over winter, that's good for the grapes. He says any, any way that the grapes can be tormented and tortured is good for the end result. He's like, you know what the worst years are? When you have too much rain. When there's not enough difference in the weather. When when the grapes have it too easy, they produce lackluster grapes, thus not great wine. But he says those years where we feel like the grapes may not make it through, but then they do, that is the best wine. And he says not all the grapes make it. A lot of them die off. A lot of them fall off the vine. A lot of them don't produce anything, but the ones that do are exquisite. I sort of keep picturing March 2020 as this moment where the sower goes out to sow. You take yourself back to March 8th was the last Sunday we met in our building up in, up in Ventura. This is the last sort of normal. We heard rumors of whatever, but it didn't really touch down in Ventura County yet. The sower went out to sow. What kind of soil did COVID find you on? That was a hard journey for our church for a number of years. And I don't know about you guys, but COVID caused us and those in our community to rethink a whole lot of things. Because when those storms hit, when the hardship hit, when COVID hit, we realized a lot of the things we were doing was not producing the kind of fruit they should. Because when there was an actual test, to use Peter's language, a tested genuineness of faith, a lot of that came back void. And I'm speaking kind of from a whole church level, but also like internally, like spiritual practices, rhythms of communing with God. All those things were challenged. Did they have roots to them? Skip down a few verses here where Jesus is explaining the parable of the soil, starting in verse uh, 18. He says, here then the parable of the soil. Because what he then goes on to explain is 
what this means for the kingdom of God and why out of four types of soils, only one of them is the good one. He's explaining the meaning of this parable and he highlights a couple of problems. Verse 19, when anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches it away, what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. Jesus says there is a very real enemy at work seeking to snatch away the good things God does for you. The good things God does in you, the good things God does through you. Satan and his demons, the very real enemy, are actively looking for a moment to snatch away any transformation and growth that may happen in your life. Notice what Jesus says. They hear the word, but they do not understand it. So they get it, but they don't really get it. They hear, but it doesn't take root at all. And the evil one comes and snatches away what's been sown in the heart. How many of you guys have read C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters? It's allegory, it's, it's fiction, yes, but I believe it is one of the most profound insights into the workings of the enemy. Primarily, we are all raised with like Looney Tunes and that devil is like the little thing on your shoulder and it's got the big red horns and everything like that. And one of the things The Screwtape Letters does for us is reminds us the devil would prefer we think of him like that. Because it actually masks how he works, subtly, affirming those fleshly desires that you have, feeding into some of the cultural impulses around you. Primarily, I believe, one of the main tools the enemy has is not sitting up on your shoulder saying, hi, I'm the devil, how's it going? But to actually just sow seeds of apathy in you, complacency. This word apathy comes from the same root word that we get sympathy and empathy from. They all come from the same root word having to do with how we process feelings. But instead of sympathy and empathy, apathy means a lack of feeling. It's cynicism. It's indifference. It's being jaded. And its original meaning means insensibility to suffering was how it was first used. Insensibility to suffering. So apathy doesn't necessarily mean you're stoic and you feel nothing, but more it's not caring enough to do anything about it. So it's often thought of as intentionally indifferent attitude that people adopt in order to avoid dealing with problems, taking on challenges, or getting involved with difficult situations. Now the last two years, I could only describe as challenging, problematic, and a difficult situation. If we look inside, what was our impulse? Was it to pull away and just, I can't, I can't even, right? I'm just going to protect myself. I can't get involved in this conversation. I can't get involved in that conversation. I don't want to upset this friend group. I don't want to upset this friend group. So I'm just not going to get involved at all. I believe... Bert's opinion here, not scripture. I believe this is one of the primary tools the enemy will use in us because it's one of the easiest ones for us to buy into. Just not going to get involved. But Jesus doesn't stop there. Verse 20, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. This sounds like good news, right? This is 
what we hope for in every spiritual conversation that we ever have. Hey, can I talk to you about Jesus? Yes, I've been waiting for someone to talk to me about Jesus. Tell me everything. Where can I get baptized? This is like, this is the dream, right? This is the dream on Alpha Night One. What is, what is the meaning of life? Oh my gosh, there's more to life? You mean this Jesus person actually exists? Where can I get dunked? Someone, please tell me. This sounds great, right? All right, Jesus isn't finished, though. Verse 21, yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, not on account of being a dummy, right? On account of the word, immediately he falls away. It starts out great, but there's no legs to this. They hear the word. They're exposed to the genuine gospel. They immediately receive it with joy. Now, I think on the surface this sounds great, but can I poke a little bit here? Immediately they receive it with joy, which means there's no challenge. There's no contemplation. There's no actually deciphering, is this true and good? They just accept it, pat. This is so much of what we see happening around us, maybe more in my generation than some of yours, of the areas of rethinking faith, if you will, deconstruction, leaving church, all of these things. Some of the spiritual writers and sociologists who are looking into this are identifying one of the primary problems is that too many people received the gospel without ever critically thinking about it. And so whenever something hard comes along, that goes against what they've been taught, they either dig their heels in and refuse to think critically or they abandon altogether because these things aren't compatible. Doesn't God love everybody? That's not what I was told about marriage. This is not what I was told about race. This is not what I was told about gender, whatever. And immediately they're forced with a decision moment. Immediately they receive it with joy, with no challenge, no contemplation. And Jesus says there's no root. There's no foundation there. There's no building blocks. And while it endures for a while, he says. So this person is a little deceptive. Maybe not on purpose. But the outward thing looks real good. The outward veneer, the face you throw on. The Christians who look like they have it all together, who look like they know their stuff, they may be really smart, they may have even gone to seminary, but then when tribulation and persecution comes, what happens? And by the way, that's a when, not an if, hard things come. When, First Peter promises you will endure suffering. When hard things come, what happens? Immediately they fall away. In the same way they received it, without challenge, contemplation, or foundation, they leave it without challenge or contemplation. They received the word when it was convenient, comfortable, useful, or enjoyable. And as soon as it becomes neither of any of those things, they drop it just as fast as they received it. Here, what's the guiding metric itself? Does this drive with what is happening internally? Does it make me happy? 
Does it make me satisfied? Does it make me comfortable? And if it doesn't, it can't be right because doesn't God want me to be happy? Jesus is still not done with us. Verse 22, as for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. So here is the word. It's different than just receive it. There's like an internalizing. They hear it, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke it out. I'm going to read a quote from one of my favorite authors. In his book, The Holy Longing, Ronald Ruhlheiser says this. It's long, but stick with me. I think it's worth it here. He quotes a couple of different authors, and then he makes a point. He says, quote, Thomas Merton once said that the biggest spiritual problem of our time is efficiency, work, pragmatism. By the time we keep the plant running, there is little time and energy for anything else. Neil Postman suggests that as a culture, we are amusing ourselves to death. That is, distracting ourselves into a bland, witless superficiality. Henry Nouwen, who has written eloquently on how our greed for experience and the restlessness, hostility, and fantasy it generates blocks solitude, hospitality, and prayer in our lives. And he makes a point here. They are all right. What each of these authors and countless others are saying is that we, for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It is not that we have anything against God, depth, and spirit. We would like these. It is just we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar screens. We are more busy than bad, more distracted than non-spiritual, and more interested in the movie theater, the sports stadium, and the shopping mall, and the fantasy life they produce in us than we are in the church. Pathological busyness, distraction, and restlessness are major blocks today within our spiritual lives. Notice the visceral imagery Jesus gives us. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, choke it out. They, ch- they literally strangle the life out of what was there. I mean... <laughs> I mean, notice just even the, the, the imagery compared to the last two problems he gave us. It's not just a bird snatching it away or rocky ground and it just kind of withers and doesn't really last. This is an aggressive action here. The cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, aggressively choke out the things of God. And it proves unfruitful. Now, during the last couple of years, covid lockdown, quarantine, conversations around race, politics, you name it. All these things get amplified. They get a megaphone. Maybe worse, we all feel permission to lean into these things. Take care of yourself. Do whatever you can do to stay busy and just keep your mind off it. But you can't do anything about this, so you don't even need to try. All those permission-giving statements were feeded into us 
by everything around us, our friends, our family, commercials, advertisements, marketing, podcasts you listen to, books, blogs, everything. Do whatever you can do to stay happy. In this, there is a potential for the church as this prophetic countercultural witness to the world to lose its potency. If we buy into the same lies that it's okay to be apathetic, it's okay to be distracted by the cares of the world, the deceitfulness of riches, then suddenly we're no different than the world around us. And our potency is gone. The thing that lit the early world on fire is not here. And we're not preparing for the next move of God. We're not faithfully building to be a remnant that God can use. Jesus says there's one type of soil that not only endures, but it yields more fruit in the face of the enemy, in the face of trials, in the face of persecution, in the face of tribulation, the enemy, the world, the flesh, all of it. There's one type of soil that not only endures, but yields fruit. Verse 23 As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields in one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and another thirty. Positioning ourselves to be ready to be used by God is positioning ourselves to bear the kind of kingdom fruit Jesus is talking about here. Now, quick pop quiz. Who's producing the fruit? Is it me or is it Jesus? Sunday school answer? Way to go. Who's enabling us to be even the kind of soil that can produce good fruit? Is it me or is it Jesus? Way to go. Are we off the hook? Way to go. All right. I love this. Because the picture we get from the New Testament is one of constant and continual change and transformation to be more like Jesus, to be more the kind of person that can produce this kind of kingdom fruit. The promise of the New Testament is nothing short of full-on transformation, which is good news because I did not, you know, come into this world ready to be transformed. Like, it was a work that needed to be done in me. Praise God that he is changing me and transforming me and not leaving me where I was. Paul writes to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 3.18, We all, with unveiled faces, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is of the Spirit. Throughout Scripture, and particularly the New Testament, we find that transformation, or just more simply growing into the likeness of Christ— or becoming the kind of soil that can produce the kind of fruit Jesus talks about, is not only the goal, it is the expectation of the Christian life. Transformation is not just the goal for the select few, but the expectation of all. And as disciples of Jesus, that's our predestined purpose, to become more like Jesus. But this transformation takes something on our part. It takes participation, and it takes intentionality. Augustine once wrote, without him, we can't, but without us, he won't. 
2 Peter 1 says to make every effort, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. And Romans 8 says it's God who was on about something in you. And Paul writes to the Philippians that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. But notice the tension in all of Paul's letters. God's at work in doing things. You got to get to work and do something. God's doing things. It's only by his spirit that we can have faith. It's only by his spirit that we can change to become more like him. But you better get off the couch and engage him in this process. And we see this interplay here in two verses in Philippians 2, verses 12 and 13. Paul writes, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Okay, we got to get to work. Obey, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Verse 13, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's both. Do I need to do things or does God need to do things? It's both. This is beautiful tension of our work and God's work at play in us. We get into trouble when we forget that and we run to one of two sides of the spectrum. When we go like, I don't have to do a thing, it's God, you know, we're really good Calvinists over here. I don't need to do anything, God's doing everything, so I'm just going to like sit here and wait. And on the other side, maybe this like legalistic or works-based righteousness that gets drilled into us saying, I have to do things or God's not showing up. And the tension we see in all of Paul's letters is both. We just sit right in the middle. We go, God is at work and I need to be at work. God is at work enabling us to join him in the good thing he's already doing in us. It is his work and our work. God's at work and you need to be at work. We're not off the hook, even if he is doing the heavy lifting. It's Jesus who builds. Jesus who grows. Jesus, who does the things he wants to do, it's our job to obey. It's our job to join him in that. I want to take you back to verse 23 for a moment in Matthew 13. Notice what Jesus says at the end. He indeed bears fruit and yields, in one case a hundredfold, in another 60, in another 30. Of the four types of soil... Only one produces fruit, but, but, before that sounds really discouraging and demoralizing, the output of that remnant is exponentially more than what it should normally produce. In fact, it's exponentially more than what all types of soil would be producing under normal circumstances. Did you catch that little math in there by Jesus? Not only does that remnant survive and endure, but it is so potent that it overcompensates for all the other soils that don't last. That is astounding to me. It out-multiplies the yield if everyone were just producing as normal. Is it an absolute tragedy that people are falling away from their faith, that people are deconstructing, that people are leaving the church? 100% yes. Is there an opportunity for the faithful, the committed, the remnant to join Jesus in this thing he's doing to be an outsized presence and influence in the world around us? Yes, absolutely. 
Jesus talks a lot about sifting wheat, sheep, and the goats. And I think there is something really fascinating about these moments throughout history when the church is struck with a decision to compromise, to become complacent, to just blend in with culture, or to live faithful, resilient lives, joining God in the work that he is doing. You know what happens? These people look a whole lot crazier in the good way. They look very different. The gap is widening. And I think there's opportunity for us to step in and say, I don't want to compromise. I don't want to decay. I don't want to live complacent lives. I want to join God in the good things he is doing. And whether we are in a moment of like unique renewal or not, I want to join God in the work that he is doing. I want to be that faithful remnant. I want to be the good soil that not only endures hardship, but outproduces for the normal circumstances. Are we passionate enough about Jesus to be passionate about Jesus? Are we convinced enough by the goodness of God and his gospel to actually sacrifice for it, to actually be changed by it, to maybe give up cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches? Do we actually want God to use us enough to prepare for it? That's all I got for you guys. Um, I'm trusting the Holy Spirit is doing stuff um, and that he's working in you and that maybe some of those questions are like penetrating beyond the yay, amen moment into the, I don't know if that's actually me right now. And you know what? Jesus and all his kindness knows that. It's his kindness that leads us to repentance. I'm not going to go into it right now, but there's a really interesting story arc of the church of Ephesus. Um, we see Ephesus kind of being birthed in the book of Acts, right around Acts chapter 18, 19, 20, right in that zone. Paul comes to them, and they're birthed in such a way that there's like riot in the streets, and demons are getting cast. It's like a crazy church planting story. Um, and then we see Paul write to the church in Ephesus a little bit later. He writes some instructions. He's building up. He's saying, you know what? I thank God for your faith. I hear about it. And I want to pray that God supplies you with spiritual strength. And he's just feeding into them more and more and more. I want you to grow. I want you to thrive. Can I act one? The church starts. Act two, God is, uh, Paul is like helping mature the church. And then act three comes in Revelation chapter 22. And Jesus says, you've lost your first love. You're doing all these really good things, but you've lost your first love. But Jesus doesn't just leave them hanging on a downer. He says, repent. Repent. If you're in Christ, repentance is a good thing. It is basking in the goodness and forgiveness of our Savior. Do we want to be used by God enough to prepare for it? Some of us under the tent, the honest answer is no. I don't want to change. My life is real comfortable. I'm happy where I am. Some of us under the tent, the answer is yes, but I have no idea what that means. 
I have no idea what that looks like. And some of us here are saying, yes, I want it, and I'm ready to sacrifice for it. The beauty of Jesus is he meets us in all of those different moments. And I don't need to necessarily hold your hand through each one of those. I can trust God's doing what he's doing. And as we respond and worship in all these different ways, like he's going to encounter you and in his kindness lead you towards something. Whether it's encouragement, affirmation to keep going, keep enduring, keep persevering, or whether it's his grace to show, you know what, here's actually an area in life you can change. Or whether that's that beautiful, gentle conviction that comes from the Holy Spirit to say, get up and do something. (laughs) He's really kind to us.